Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. And today I'd like to start out by reminding you that there is an entire website out there called Wealth Formula Podcast with all sorts of resources on there, including free books from my friend George Newberry, who is the founder of American Homeowner Preservation, one of our sponsors, and... There is also my free book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth. George will send you a real book. I'll send you an electronic copy of mine because I'm cheaper than him. But uh, go ahead and check that out, wealthformula.com. You can also get a copy of Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth, my book, by simply texting 44222 and putting in Wealth Formula, one word. And uh, you'll get that on your on your phone there, that device with that technology thing, right? Finally, I also want to remind you, if you are interested and getting more involved with the community, there is a course, there is a private community uh, with uh, exclusive information and bi-weekly phone calls, all of that bundled up into one. You can learn all about that at wealthformularoadmap.com, so check that out as well. On to today's show. So when I was a kid growing up in the early 80s, I remember my parents uh, had opened up the savings account for me and let me take the interest out as um, as an allowance. And that was a pretty good deal for me um, because I was only eight years old. And I remember riding my bike to the bank every couple of months and showing them uh, my bank passbook, right? That's, that's all it took to access my account at age eight, okay? For those of you too young to remember, a bank passbook sort of looked like a passport and it helped keep track of your transactions. So I would show the bank teller my bank passbook and I would ask her, and I say her because it was always a woman, to give me all of uh, the interest that I had accumulated in cash. And invariably, she'd give me about 20 bucks every time I went. Now, I wasn't allowed to touch the principal, and frankly, I have no idea uh, how much money was there in principal, but that was the 80s, and it was during the time of sort of hyperinflation, uh, so we had a double-digit interest rate. So if you do the math backwards and you say 20 bucks every other, every other month, actually, you could, probably, you could probably do the math pretty easily. It wasn't that much money. Anyways, somewhere along the line, uh, bank tellers stopped dispensing cash, uh, and the passbook disappeared, but the bank tellers did not. I say this because that was a genuine fear that people had with the advent of the ATM. You see, they thought that the ATMs would steal human jobs. And as it turned out, the ATMs ended up doing the simple work of dispensing the cash, and the tellers didn't lose their jobs. They just focused on the more complex stuff. And in the end, everyone was happy. 
uh, and the lines were even shorter and et cetera, et cetera. But the moral of the story is that every time there's a new technology, it doesn't mean that the robots or the technology is going to steal our jobs. It just means that our jobs might look different. And this is particularly important to understand right now as we see artificial intelligence advancing at a rapid pace. I mean, what what does a world with advanced AI uh, artificial intelligence and blockchain look like anyway. You got driverless cars, equity markets without investment bankers. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, but I am confident that we will continue to find things for us, the people, to continue to do. I don't think I don't think we're going to become obsolete. It'll just be different. Listen, maybe I'm being overly optimistic, but I look back on human civilization and realize that we are incredibly good at adapting to our own new realities. So let me take you back as an example. So back in 1798, there was a guy by the name of Thomas Malthus, and he published an essay on the principle of population. In short, his theory was that human populations were going to outgrow our food supply. So from where he stood, that might have been the case you know, from his perspective, but it didn't take into account a lot of the agricultural technology and advancements uh, that occurred over the next several years that made it ultimately possible to feed an ever-expanding human population. So he was, you know, he was wrong, but uh, his projections may have not been wrong, but he didn't anticipate all these advancements. Similarly, I'm hopeful that our ingenuity is going to bail us out of some of the other challenges we face today, like for example, sovereign debt. Maybe we'll have some kind of a booming economy because of something else. I mean, look, and maybe it's blockchain after all. I mean, listen, Internet did that back in the you know 90s uh, and made the Clinton economy look incredible. Uh, blockchain could potentially do the same thing. Maybe this whole thing with global climate change, which I do believe the climate's changing because, I mean, shoot, look around you. It, there's a thousand-year flood every year now. But maybe we will, as a society, uh, be able to, you know, figure out some technology that'll help us reverse some of these things that are going on. That's what I'm hoping for. You know, technological advancements since the advent of the Internet are accelerating at a lightning pace. Uh, In the meantime, we face an increasingly insular world of nationalism and economic inequality that is actually more reminiscent of the early 20th century that ultimately culminated into the world wars, World War I and World War II. How all this is going to end up is anyone's guess, but one thing's for sure, we live in interesting times. By the way, may you live in interesting times is a a Chinese curse, so it's not always a good thing to be uh, living in interesting times. My guest on this week's Wealth Formula is really well-versed in all these topics that I just brought up, okay? He is, uh, he is a very, very smart guy. He, is, uh, he has a mastery of macroeconomics and technology and fintech. He looks at problems of today uh, with the knowledge of the past and a keen insight into the future. And his name is Diego Zuluaga from the Cato Institute. And you're going to really enjoy this conversation, I think, because it is actually one of the more interesting conversations I've had on Wealth Formula podcasts. So when we come back, we're going to talk to Diego about the future, of actually the past, present, and the future. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? 
As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Diego Suluaga. Diego is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives, where he covers financial technology and consumer credit. Before joining Cato, uh, Zuluaga was head of financial services and tech policy at the Institute of Economic Affairs in London. And while at the IEA, he authored papers on the social value of finance, the regulation of online platforms, and the taxation of capital income. Uh, amongst other works. He's also been featured in print and broadcast media such as The Times, uh, Newsweek, and The Daily Telegraph. Diego, thanks for joining us today. Hi, Buck. It's great to join you. Thank you. You know, I want to kind of start out, you know, you have a really interesting background and uh, being with the Cato Institute and also sort of a libertarian think tank and your uh, involvement in tech. Give us a little bit of your background to understand the perspective through which you're seeing the financial world. Sure. So uh, I was born in Spain, born and raised. Um, And then when I was 18, I moved to Canada and I studied there and lived there for a while. Then I moved to the UK uh, and spent some years there and then continued my education there and then worked for uh, quite a bit of time and eventually ended up in D.C., And a lot of my interest in economics, I think, comes from the timing around a lot of these events in my life. You know, I grew up around the time that the housing bubble in Spain was coming to its peak. Obviously, uh, after that, the plunge was quite significant and we had a housing crisis that's comparable to the housing crisis in the worst parts of the U.S. in places like Nevada, Florida, because we had a very similar economy at the time, very tourist-oriented, construction-oriented, so employment plunge very high unemployment, very dim prospects. And indeed, the Spanish economy is still struggling. And that was quite uh, a scarring experience for anyone who lived through that. And I had always had an interest in economics because my dad studied the subject and um, there were always books lying around. And so, you know, I would take a peek into them. And even though I wouldn't understand much of the terminology, there was something about it that made it seem really relevant. And so that's how I came to the subject of economics. And finance seemed to be the area of specialization that one should do at this particular point in time, because so much is going on. Everybody talks about the world becoming financialized, more and more of the economy being handled through financial institutions of some form or another, more and more people saving uh, for the future, 
to prevent risks for their families, to invest in a business, whatever it is. It seems that economic development is pointing in the direction where finance is going to be, and an understanding of finance, uh, are going to be particularly important in terms of uh, being able to play a positive role in the world and also do well for oneself, sure, right? Sure. So that's how I came into the into the subject. And the places where I have been based through my career have been very finance-oriented and also quite affected by the regulatory drive that happened post-2008. So there's been a lot to talk about. There's been a tremendous amount of controversy. And I think, you know, the world has changed quite a bit since 2008, both in terms of people's perceptions of finance and its implications for the rest of the economy, but also in terms of what we understand the role of the state is in regulating banking and financial markets and making sure that taxpayers are not exposed to risks that they never underwrote. Yeah, interesting. So let's jump into some of the things that I know that you you talk about. One of the topics you talk about, which I thought was interesting which is very relevant right now is the phenomenon of disintegration of the global financial system. And uh, just uh, for clarification, disintegration is sort of the opposite of globalization and something that we've seen increasingly over the years. Uh, we've seen it in Europe uh, vis-a-vis Brexit. Um, some of, And then obviously since President Trump took office here in the U.S., what are the forces that are that traditionally drive disintegration and maybe kind of get into what's going on today? Sure. So to begin, as you, as you mentioned, disintegration, we understand as the opposite of globalization, which is a process that has been really happening across the world, starting in the West, but increasingly around the world since about 1960. And then from 1980, you have not just North America and Europe integrating both within their own economic areas and across each other's areas, uh, but also China liberalizing and entering the world economy in 1990. India came through, that's about 3 billion people that suddenly joined the global economy. And so what we see then is that the share in all global GDP, the share of imports and exports of all the countries involved in global trade has been steadily increasing. And it's higher than it's been ever before. Now, that doesn't mean that globalization is a one-off event. We've had processes of globalization before, and they were interrupted in one form or another. And as you rightly pointed out, there are certain factors we can look at to try and see what drives the disintegration, maybe at the political level, maybe at the economic uh, level, and try to find the things that we might want to guard against or the things that we might want to mitigate if we think that disintegration is a bad thing. And I happen to think that disintegration is a bad thing because trade is beneficial, particularly to the poorest. It enables specialization. It makes innovation easier. It makes people want to speak to one another because both sides benefit. It's got all these benefits, right? But there's a, there's so, also data there, right? I mean, and, and just to, to be clear, I think sometimes in certain circles, globalization uh, has become a four-letter word. And um, But and as you as you talk about sort of the you know some of the the benefits of you know people getting along too and not having hot wars and things like that but i've seen you point out some real data on this matter mm-hmm. it's not just a matter of i think it makes sense i mean people historically during times of of globalization have all done better it's not been you know we we don't do as well because we're letting somebody else do better that's right no i think that's absolutely right and i think you know in terms of data there are a lot of I think, important points that can be raised that might be counterintuitive to people. For example, manufacturing output, 
both in the United States and in the United Kingdom, is higher than it's ever been. It's just that we're having more and more of it made by machines and people are moving to jobs in the services sector. But it's not like manufacturing is declining in any meaningful economic way. We're producing more than ever before. We are richer than ever before. We're about twice as rich as we were in the 1970s in real terms. And I'm talking about Western countries. Of course, if you look at China or India, you're talking about much higher multiples. In China, the extreme poverty rate has plunged from about 80% in 1981 to around 10 or 12% in the last few years. I mean, and this is in the context of the population increasing ever further. We have 9 billion people on Earth today versus 1 billion people in 1800 when the Industrial Revolution started. And more people are employed today, gainfully employed and productively employed than were there before, even though we have all these machines around and we're competing with each other much more, right? So that is the context in which this has happened. Uh, most of the trends we see are positive in terms of health outcomes, in terms of education, in terms of human development and, and, and the freedom to move and the freedom to interact with each other and decide what you do for a living. You know, things like the caste system or the class system that was implemented in China under the communists or discrimination in the United States are becoming a lot less prevalent. And I think part of it has to do with the economic development that's happened. So the, the one of the things that I, I've seen you say is that some of the drivers of disintegration include, you know, historically speaking, are um, uh, depressions. So we see around World War One, you have inflation uh, and also uh, inequality, income inequality. And so when I look at what you say there, the first two things, which is depression, and clearly at least in the U.S., we're we have what appears to be, I mean, you know, there, there's arguments to be made uh, about this, but a, a booming economy. Inflation, although I think, I think many economists uh, will argue, and, and, and uh, for good reason, that inflation is something that we can look forward to and with, with great certainty in the future with the amount of debt we have. That leaves income inequality. And so with what's happening today, either in Europe or specifically in the U.S. and our attitudes about it. Is that is inequality the main driver at this point, in your view, of, of the forces of disintegration? I think that inequality has played a role, but I don't think it's the sole driver, nor is it really the main driver, in my view, and I'll tell you why. So to start, you, all the factors you pointed out, whether it's war, inflation, or inequality, we're talking about polarization polarization between people who live with one another and therefore can see the prosperity of some and the misery of others, which is drastically changing, right? So the previous wave of globalization, which was up to World War I, it was throughout the 19th century and up to World War I. What happened in World War I was that suddenly some people were forced to go to the front. Some people saw a lot of their wealth eradicated because they were on the losing side. Um, but obviously the distribution of those losses was unequal within countries. And I think the combination of the antagonism during the war and then the economic outcomes from that really polarized internally societies that previously had, had lived in some sort of harmony because of the expectation that, every, that all boats would be lifted by the rising tide. Right. And the drastic change from that really changed things. With inflation, it's similar because the people who own real assets, if you own real estate, if you own stocks, you're shielded from inflation to a very large extent. But most people at the bottom, at, at least until recently, thankfully, thanks to financial technology, that's changing. But most people at the bottom had only cash savings or they had bonds of some form or another, typically, 
and those were completely wiped out by high inflations. So you were saying about looking forward to inflation. I can I can see what you mean, but I think unexpected inflations and escalating inflations of the sort we cannot really plan for those are really problematic. That's what's happening in Venezuela right now, and it's uh, you know it's it's one of those very rare cases where you had a housing bubble at the same time as you had a plunging economy because people were fleeing cash as quickly as they could, buying real assets at the same time as the productive capacity of the economy was exhausted. Anyway, that's just a side sure. um, side comment on your main question, which is, is inequality driving this? Well, first of all, inequality is rising in some countries within some countries. So it looks like the top 10% in the United States are capturing an increasing share of income compared to, say, 1970 or 1980. Sure. That doesn't apply to the UK, by the way. So it's not a universal fact of the West. It's a fundamentally a US phenomenon, but it's also been the case in other countries. France, Germany have, have a bit of that. But globally, inequality is decreasing precisely because the poorer countries, the, 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 the traditionally poorer countries, are growing much faster. And as a result of that, what you see is that extreme poverty is declining very fast and incomes at the top are not rising nearly as fast. And so you have convergence. So at the global level, we actually don't have as much inequality as we used to. But within countries, within some countries, it has increased. And I think because the inequality within countries is much more visible, because they're the people you live with, they're the neighborhoods you used to live in that you're, not, you're priced out of, uh, you see a lot less uh, of, an, of an income convergence, ex except in some cities, you see a lot less variety in terms of economic backgrounds of the people that live together, right? More and more, we are sort of organically segregating into groups that are similar to us, similarly educated, earning similar incomes with similar political views. And I think all of that has to, it, it is a driver of polarization because we're not really exposed to what the rest of the world looks like. And I think that can sort of as a side effect or um, ultimate consequence of inequality, that can drive the polarization. The problem is that the policy solutions aren't easy because in, not all inequality is equal, so to say, meaning that is it because the economy is rigged in favor of the rich or is it because we have zoning laws in places like California, but also in Washington, D.C., where I live and in New York City, where which means that you cannot build and therefore the people who earn not very high incomes have to move out. Is it because of regulation or is it because somehow free markets are uh, driving the negative outcomes? I happen to believe it's much more with the regulation. It's much more due to the regulation that creates privileges for the rich. Um, but unless we agree on what the policy solutions are, even if we di diagnose the cause of the problem, we're not going to be able to address it properly. Understood. So um, just a thought, though, in, in terms of what you're seeing right now, specifically in the U.S., what do you think beyond inequality? Because I'm, I keep going back to this thinking, you know, listening to your talk on disintegration, I keep thinking to myself, well, the U.S. should not be in a situation right now where we are we are becoming isolationists based on at least the historical issues. So do you think that in, in this case that um, some of it may be a, a function of things that are non-economic? I mean, could they simply be, well, we obviously have issues with, you know, wars that have been going on for years and terrorism and all these other things or is it fundamentally always financial in these situations maybe it's my own professional bias but i i do tend to believe that it's mostly economic yeah. i think one difference today with the past is that we had the combination of a massive financial crisis that was perceived to be very unfair 
because people were rescued who were making lots of money before the crisis by the people who suffered the most from it, right? And then together with that, we had a massive acceleration of technological transformation. And I think people don't like volatility. So if you gave people certainty as to how the world is going to change, I think they would be quite happy with a fast pace of change. But it's the uncertainty about what's going to, how it's going to unravel and who is going to be affected first and who last and who is going to be put out of a job. I yeah. think that's what makes people, the, the absence of the ability to plan yeah. is what really drives people um, crazy in, 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 in many ways. And I mean crazy, you know, in the sense of saying, well, will I be able to form a family? Should I, should I buy a house now? Should I invest in my education? Should I take out $50,000 in student loans? We have a record amount of outstanding loans for students in the United States. So I think a lot of those questions revolve around the fact that we have less certainty. We perceive we have less certainty about the future than we used to. Yeah. And I think if you find yourself on the receiving end of economic transformation in some of the industrial areas in the Rust Belt or in some of the rural areas that used to thrive and now due to agricultural imports from other places are feeling downward pressure on prices, I think that changes your view about change and the goodness of it. Uh, those are all economic factors. I, I'm not ruling out that there are values differences or that people maybe are, uh, have been persuaded by arguments that we find, that other people find morally repulsive, whether it's on the left or on the right, and that that's also driving the polarization. Those are a lot more easily accepted when people can um, find someone to blame, right? I mean, ultimately, what we're talking about is fear. We're talking about fear that drives people, a fear, fear of uncertainty. And in situations like that, uh, traditionally, what you see is people sort of becoming more insular. And if you can scapegoat others, the other, and to blame for your your mm-hmm. plight, then then that's frequently what we see. Let's talk a little I bit. Of, yeah, go if, ahead. If I can just pursue the point you just made, I think one important difference today versus, say, 50 years ago or even more 100 years ago is that we used to have solutions to social problems locally and privately much more than we do today. Today, most people, whether on the left or the right, look to the government and usually the national government or the federal government for solutions to poverty, to inequality, to discrimination, to um, fake news. Uh, A lot of things seem like they cannot be addressed by people talking to each other on a local level and coming up with solutions and then that competition between different solutions driving the best outcomes. And not only that, but because we look to government, we see it as fundamentally not a problem of constructive uh, dialogue, meaning that everybody benefits, but rather who gets the spoils? Because the government only has limited resources and somebody has to be in charge and decides who gets what. And I think the antagonism often comes from that too. If you believe the government is working for the immigrants and you believe that the immigrants, that the immigrants getting things works against you, then you're going to have a very different attitude to immigration than if you believe immigrants can benefit from coming to a country and contribute and can benefit you in the process. And I think some of it has to do with exposure and the perceived idea of who pays for what and how a problem solved. It's sort of ripe for demagoguery to, to direct mm-hmm. that. So, so let's talk a little bit about automation. You know, when you think about jobs, it makes me wonder, should Americans be more worried about robots than they are the Chinese taking their job? I mean, what do you think the real implications of increased automation are uh, to global economies and individuals within those economies trying to make a living? 
I think the fundamental fact is the one I mentioned earlier, that we have nine times as many people today as we did when we started properly automating the economy in 1800, right? Mm -hmm. And we have more people employed than we did then. Most of those people, if not the, the overwhelming majority, I'm talking about 99.5% of those people are better off than they were then. There are pockets in you know, sub-Saharan Africa that are as poor as they were then. But for the most part, people are better off, in most cases, much better off. Right. Um, making better things in things that are not necessarily economic outcomes. People are much better off health-wise, education-wise, and so on. That's, I think, the fundamental fact. Meaning, historical precedent doesn't give us any reason to panic in the long term. But that's where the crucial difference is. Right. In the long term, uh, you know, Keynes said, in the long term, we're all dead. In the long term, <laughs> sure, we're all dead. And that changes our view of things. That's right. Um, but if we're looking at the aggregate impact of something, that's the way we look at it. The problem is the transition. People are worried about the impact on their job and the impact, you know, what's going to happen. I'm 30 now. If I lose my job and I have to retrain over 10 years, by that time I'm 40, oh, you know, my, 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 Lifetime earnings will go down. My life will be much more miserable and so on and so forth. And I, that's completely uh, understandable. Another problem is that we have a fundamental asymmetry in how we analyze something like automation because we can look at the economy today and the research that's going on today in terms of self-driving cars, in terms of uh, factory you know, manufacturing, the use of uh, artificial intelligence, um, the transformation from manufacturing to services as far as people are employed and so on and so forth. And we can see which areas are going to be easily automated, right? We know that call, call centers are going to go. Truck drivers will probably go soon too. And a bunch of other occupations that do keep a lot of people busy and employed and gainfully employed right now. But we cannot easily say, first of all, what's going to create the new jobs? And secondly, how many there are going to be? So there was this famous study at the University of Oxford a couple of years ago. Uh, but I think by the guys who did the book, The Second Machine Age. So these are people who deal with, you know, automation and its implications on a daily basis. And they gave an estimate of the jobs that would be lost in the United States. I think it's by 2050. And it was a number that revolved around 47% or so. Now, the problem was that they accounted for the losses in the existing economy. So they gave you the debit side of the balance sheet. Right. But they didn't give us any credit side because, you know, and, and, and this is perfectly understandable, they couldn't possibly predict uh, where the new jobs were going to come from. So the example I use sort of to try and amuse people when, when I'm asked this question is, in the United Kingdom, there, in 1965, there were under 1,000 personal trainers. In 2015, there were 25,000. If, if you had asked, any, especially an economist, if you had asked them in 1965, are they going to be... 25 times as many personal trainers and are they going to be properly remunerated? He would probably have said, well, I have no idea, but probably not. That sounds like a very plausible job. And you look at it, right? And so many, you know, data scientists, uh, marketing and, and salespeople, a lot of those jobs in the way that we see them today, we couldn't possibly have imagined in 1980 or 1985, you know, the vast number of programming jobs that are coming through. And how many people are learning to code even for day-to-day -day occupations, right? You know, it's not, it's not a techie thing anymore. And I think if we look at that, I think it's important to look at patterns and trends. And if we look at those, we become much more optimistic than if we look at, oh, self-driving cars are coming, all trucking jobs are going to yeah. be gone. Yeah. You know, I think an interesting example I, uh, I saw you make was uh, with 
with the ATM machines, right, in the 80s. And uh, if you want to talk That's a little right. bit about the, the, the fears that surrounded the ATM and what ended up happening. That's right. So most uh, particularly low-level, entry-level jobs in banking up until the 1980s were as tellers, as people cashing in checks, taking money out for people, you know, helping depositors and so on. And then the automatic teller machine, the ATM, uh, came around. And the fear was that a lot of those jobs would be automated away and that therefore the number of jobs and the number of branches in banking and the, you know, the, the physical presence of banks would be diminished and the number of jobs would also decline. What happened instead was that ATMs lowered costs of operating any individual branch massively and it also released a labor force that was paper, you know, pushing paper all day, doing relatively low value added tasks to market products instead to talk to clients about the next thing that they should look into, the 401k plan or the certificate of deposit or uh, refinancing their mortgage. And sometimes, of course, that ability to market was used in predatory ways. I'm not saying that people sometimes didn't take advantage of customers in the way they did it, but for the most part, it meant that you could move. As a teller, you could move to a much more, much higher value-added job. And it is, in fact, the case that from the 1980s, both the number of bank branches and the number of jobs in retail banking, this is not even investment banking, in retail banking increased, contrary to everybody's expectations. So it's one of those lessons of history that I think we should heed in terms of looking forward. So when you look at this as an economist, the confluence of automation, disintegration, and you know some of the other factors that are, are common uh, and, and, and potentially problematic, where do you see this all going? Where do you see our future, you know, over the next few years unravel? Is this a self-correcting phenomena? Is this something that's going to be, you know, potentially significant short-term pain trying to get things and then, you know, just just curious kind of on your outlook. Well, for the, over the next 2 years it's it's hard to tell because there are so many competing uh numbers coming through uh, telling giving us different signals. So we're in, in the process of an expansion, focusing on the US, we're in the process of an expansion that's been going on for about nine years. The longest expansion ever in the US is 10 years, and that was the 1990s, a very special time because the wall had fallen down, computers were being deployed everywhere, a lot of good things were happening, and maybe that prolonged the expansion. So a lot of people are saying, well, this expansion is nine years old, it's probably time for a recession. Now, there are a few things that militate against that. And the first one is that the expansion since 2009 has been much slower than previous ones. Yep. And we've taken, therefore, we've taken a lot longer to get to where we were before this time. So it's only natural that we would also expand for longer. That's the first objection. The second one is that expansions don't really die of old age. Something has to go wrong. And unless you can point to something going wrong, it's difficult to say, well, a recession is due any moment. Now, a number of things look like they could very well go wrong, and especially the value at risk, if you will, to use the finance term, which means that if you have a really bad outcome, how bad can it be? Which is the question that a lot of traders ask themselves every day, right? right. You know, the worst possible left tail, if you're looking at a distribution of outcomes, the worst outcome you could have. How bad could it be? Well, you look at the potential trade war with China, you look at the populist movements that are taking power in a lot of countries in Europe. You look at tensions in the Middle East and the decline of commodity prices and the inter interaction of those two. 
and then political tensions in the US, and you could point to a lot of factors that could really, uh, if they went really bad, could result in something much worse than what we've seen in a long time. A lot of things seem to be coming together, but they're very low probability events. And the fact that they would happen, you know, the, the, the likelihood that they would happen all together at the same time is still very small. So we should plan against it, but it's difficult to predict the impact that they will have over the next um, couple of years or so. People point to sovereign debt, that countries are borrowing a lot in currencies that are not their own, and therefore they're going to struggle to repay, even go bankrupt. That might trigger another crisis. Um, but I don't see the numbers there yet. We don't see the amount of leverage in the system that we used to see before the bursting of the housing bubble in the United States or in any European country. We don't see the same level. So I wouldn't predict any recession on that front in the near future. Of course, I'm not in the business of making predictions. Sure, I'm sure. in the business of making recommendations. Yeah. Uh, um, but I think longer term, these trends are inevitable. No one, no one believes that suddenly the Luddites are going to take charge and automation is going to come to us. Yeah. Trade may decline, but it is my belief that it's so difficult to disentangle supply chains today between countries that you, you would have a much harder time unraveling globalization than you did in 1918. Because in 1918, it was mostly about importing raw materials, say importing um, oil from Saudi Arabia or Iraq, and selling manufactured goods back. Right now, it's about intermediate goods. You know, you, you build something in the United States that's an intermediate component, send it to Mexico for finishing, and then it's imported back into the US. When you actually do the accounting for that, and you, as a protectionist, you know, imagine there's someone in the Trump administration pushing protectionism, it's very difficult to quantify the losses and to explain to people how it is that they're gonna benefit or lose, you know? Yeah. And, and, this, was, this came to the fore, I think, in the midterm elections in the state of Indiana, because the state of Indiana has a lot of manufacturing, but also has quite a bit of agriculture. So if you as a voter are trying to gauge the impact on your state of the president's policies, do you look at the short-term benefits of protectionism on manufacturing, say on steel making? Although then, even then, you know, the cost of steel goes up, so a lot of manufacturing could be affected. Or do you look at the, posit you know, at the positives from protecting agriculture, right? Yeah, and that's I think in general that's a pretty complex um, question is, is trying to understand what exactly the reality is behind what uh, the Trump administration is thinking. I mean, a lot of people look at this and say, you know, I mean, as is a libertarian, uh, my uh, somebody with libertarian leanings myself, I look at it and say, well, what are we doing? And we're we're tariffs and and and. Um, creating uh, barriers to trade and all that. But then the other side of it is that, you know, he's known as the guy who wants to make a deal. So maybe he can get a better deal. Um, and that's it's just a game of chicken with China, because China, frankly, would get probably more hurt by a trade war escalation over time than we would. And China knows that. Do you think that that's, I mean, is, is that kind of what the prevailing uh, thought uh, on, uh, from, from the academics is? I think that's right. The issue with China as well is that they're a single party state and the legitimacy of the party is predicated on the economy doing well. And it's known that the Chinese Communist Party values stability above all. Right. So if you have significant economic disruption, I think they would try to do their most to fend it off, which is why I think that the Trump administration is quite bullish on its 
st very strong, to put it mildly, tactics uh, working out is that they think the Chinese have too much at stake and are willing to compromise, right. particularly because they do export so much to the rest of the world. And the U.S. is still a, 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 a trendsetter, whether for good or bad, in terms of international trade policies. And they have a lot of weight in the World Trade Organization and so on. So I think on that front, yeah, it's probably the case that China might end up hitting, and that's the balance of probabilities. But it's still a very destructive effort, I think, on the whole, because we've all benefited from freer trade. We, as consumers, of course, have benefited. And even as producers, we are able to specialize. More. The U.S. economy is no poorer than it was when China started to open up. And China has become a lot richer. And Chinese are buying all sorts of U.S. goods and services, not least U.S. higher education, which is a massive cultural export of the United States. I mean, one thing, one interesting thing with China is that the next generation of leaders are, for the most part, going to have been educated in the United States. And that completely transforms your interactions, I think. Because yeah. you look at the current president of China, Xi Jinping, and he was born and raised there. He was He suffered for a while because his father fell out of favor with the communist leadership, and so he was banished. You know, he grew up in China, and he's a very sort of culturally Chinese right. um, leader. I don't think the next generation is necessarily going to be like that if they've all gone to Cornell and Princeton and Harvard and, you know, Southwestern and so on and so forth. You know, and, and, and it's just um, hard for me to believe that relation, the relationship is going to be the same. And if anything, it's going to be to the U.S.'s advantage just because the cultural brawl of the United States is as yet unbeatable. Right. Right. Absolutely. I want to change uh, focus a little bit on uh, something that you and I both have an, an interest in, which is uh, blockchain. Well, first of all, when was the first time you heard of Bitcoin and, and blockchain and, and what were your initial thoughts? So the first time I heard about Bitcoin was in 2013 at the start of the uh, or in the middle of the first rally. Uh, and my first thought was. This is a Ponzi scheme. I have. To <laughs> right, right. That was my first thought, uh -huh. um, because that that kind of price escalation, and not understanding the technology, which is the key thing here, right? Not understanding the technology immediately leads you to believe this is just a cha basically a sophisticated chain letter system where right. people are paying a lot of money to somebody in the expectation that somebody else is going to pay them even more money tomorrow. Yep. That is ultimately not sustainable. That was my first reaction. And then I actually began to look at it from a more technical perspective or, you know, from a work perspective from about 2015 or so. And I started looking at the technology and I actually read the Bitcoin white paper sure. for the first time then, which, you know, is, is something I'm not proud of. I should have done it when I first heard about Bitcoin, yeah, sure. it's not that long either. And it's very well written. And anyway, I read it then. And this pseudonym, which is a guy or a woman or a group of guys or a group of women or, you know, some combination of those, um, proposing what they call a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. And this is a very interesting proposal. And it's not the first time that people have tried to do this. But every time we ran against one problem, which was that the technology didn't allow for me not knowing you back to, to prove to you that if I say to you, send me some good, some widget, and I will pay you in Bitcoin, that I haven't also promised my Bitcoin to somebody else in the interim. And therefore, you're never going to get paid. Right. And in uh, a network that operates in that way, ultimately unravels because there's not enough trust. So we always ended up with an intermediary of some sort. Even digitally, we had PayPal and now we have Venmo and so on. Right. Sure. 
in, in Nakamoto, Satoshi Nakamoto, finally comes up with a solution. He says, well, let's create the incentives so that every user on the network is encouraged to behave in the right way. And how do you do that? Well, you reward the people who confirm the transactions, the people who are actually going through every transaction and verifying that the person that A, who is sending the funds, actually has the funds, and that B, who is receiving the funds, actually does receive them. And if they get rewarded on that basis, and it's very costly to try and defraud the system because you have to try and fool all these other people, then suddenly you have a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. And Bitcoin is 10 years old as of last week, and it's still going. Yeah, yeah sure, a lot of volatility, but the market value is much greater than it was in uh, in in 2009 when the first transactions started going, of course, but even in 2012. And as my friend Nick Carter says, People call it a bubble, but show me a bubble that's come back as many times as Bitcoin has. Yeah, And I think he has a point there. I'm starting to become increasingly a, a Bitcoin maximalist myself. And so I agree with that assessment. But I also think that people underestimate sort of the, what I would call the social phenomena. It's interesting. I was listening to uh, an interview with... Uh, you know, a, a true Bitcoin maximalist the other day. And I'm thinking to myself, what this guy really is talking about is the Austrian school of economics, right? I mean, this is really sort of the digital realization of that entire theory. And it's really taken a hold. And so to really understand the potential for this, I think that people need to understand even more than just the tech. They need to understand that it's sort of a way for this theory that's sort of been in the shadows for years and and you know there's always your austrian school guys and stuff this is actually coming to life and people young people are really taking to it your thoughts on this well i, I think that's absolutely right it's a very interesting point and it's absolutely true that this cryptocurrency technology and blockchain technology is very appealing to libertarians on many levels right because you're removing the government from um potentially the management of a payment system, the creation of a currency, if it indeed ends up becoming a currency. It isn't quite yet a currency, right? Sure. But if it became generally accepted, it could be used as currency. Um, but also the fact that you don't have an intermediary that the government can use to control your interactions. So right now, banks have to comply with a lot of information provision for tax reasons and anti-terrorism reasons and various other reasons that are well-intentioned, but often end up being much more intrusive than they should be. And libertarians are very wary of that. And so they, um, I think, are quite encouraged by the prospect of a technology that removes you from that. Um, what I do think that this is going to lead to, though, is a culture clash, not dissimilar from the one that happened with the Internet in the mid-90s, where you had the Declaration of Independence of the Web on one hand, and then you had the rise of massive Internet-based corporations from the late 1990s onwards and the Internet bubble. Right? right, uh, or what they call the internet, the tech bubble of the late 90s. And so you see this in discussions of blockchain technology now because the corporate, the corporate giants are jumping all over this, right, and doing trials of it. IBM is on it, Amazon is on it, uh, Maersk, the shipping giant, is on it. And that is very different from the vision that I think a lot of the cryptocurrency pioneers had in terms of peers on an individual level interacting with each other people mining Bitcoin sort of with their laptops whenever they're not doing work on it. You know, now we have industrial miners, most of them based in China, doing a lot of the Bitcoin mining. It's a very different beast from the one I think that Nakamoto envisaged. 
Yeah. Um, and it's a bit like when Bill Gates said that the biggest uh, RAM was going to be 128 uh, kilobytes or something like that in, in the mid-1980s. Of course, you know, he made this confident prediction, which was completely wrong, yeah. but he still rode the wave of success. Uh, and I think eventually there's going to be some sort of a cultural um, uh, disagreement between some of the people you were describing, the more libertarian-minded, Bitcoin maximalist types, and the people who just want to use this technology for efficiency reasons. And beyond that, too, if you look at what's happening even on Wall Street, and uh, I don't know if you've been following this, but BACT, which is spelled B-A-K-K-T, uh, mm -hmm. platform that is being uh, released by uh, the Intercontinental Exchange, the owners of the New York Stock Exchange, and that's that they will be um, releasing a, well, they'll, they'll start selling Bitcoin, actual custodian, physically, you know, held Bitcoin on December 12th. And then you've got, you know, this uh, ETF that uh, is still on the table that's backed by the Chicago Board of Options Exchange. I mean, this is, uh, the irony here to me is that exactly what you're talking about is that uh, Bitcoin was brought to life and ultimately, I think, got its initial push by dis people who, who were unhappy with the banking system, right? People who looked at 2008 and said, look at what they did to us. We're going to take that power back. But the, the irony of it all is it's those very banks that are going to take this you know, currently $200 billion market cap and turn it into a $2 trillion market cap. And all of those <laughs> libertarian Bitcoin maximalists are going to become millionaires and billionaires. So, so it's truly That's ironic right. to me. There's a scene, there's an old movie, The Leopard, based in Sicily with Burt Lancaster. It's from the 1950s, but it's, it's set in the 1800s. And there's a revolution happening in Sicily, Right. And the nobleman who used to run the place and sees revolution coming at one point in the movie says, all must change so that all remains the same. <laughs> and this is a bit what is going on here. It's like we have this massive disruption so that the people who are well-connected and well-placed can best take advantage of it. Right. And I think this, to some extent, is inevitable. Not least because if you want to invest in a lot of these projects, you have to be an accredited investor or you have to be in a private equity fund or, a, or, or some sort of trading fund. And to have that exposure as a regular guy, you, you, you cannot easily do it in the United States. So let's talk about that a little bit. That's the other ironic part of it to me, right, is, is um, now we've got SEC regulations on new projects. Should cryptocurrencies be regulated? Are they securities? Are they commodities? You know, the, what are your thoughts on some of these questions? Well, my first reaction is that it seems a bit too early to think too hard about these questions. I mean, we have to because the regulators are talking about it. And if we believe this technology offers some promise, then we have to uh, have a think about how that promise can best be grasped. But you look at the market value of cryptocurrencies, and it's $200 billion. The U.S. capital markets are $32 trillion, and there's about $320 trillion of wealth in the world. Yeah, and Amazon so, and Apple are both trillion dollars. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Exactly right. So you have right. corporations that are multiples the right. size of the whole cryptocurrency market. Right. So in terms of the exposures and the kinds of investments that people are making, it doesn't seem to me like it warrants that much attention. If you've been around the cryptocurrency world and have seen the returns and the volatility and are lured in to make a quick buck, then you cannot say that you were that somehow you were predated upon. 
because there are plenty of warnings everywhere. Sure. And this is not mom and pop investors getting burned. I mean, maybe there was a little bit of that at the end of 2017 with the big ICO boom. But even then, I mean, a lot of these fundraising rounds that happened that went to nothing, they were tiny. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars, not more than that. So we're talking about, you know, the, the kind of um, Ponzi schemes that happened in stock markets historically were much bigger. So that's the first reaction. The first reaction is before you have this heavy handed solution, have some sense of proportion. This is tiny. Let it develop a bit more and let's see how it goes. My own view is that the best way, if we're going to have any sort of introduction of cryptos into the financial regulation framework, the best regulation is that of commodities because commodities currently are regulated by the, by the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, uh, which is um, in charge of futures and derivatives, but it has a relatively, it leaves a relatively free hand for commodities themselves. And the nature of cryptos, because they tend to be in fixed supply, they're used to buy goods and services on a platform. They're basically an input. They're like a raw material. It seems to chime in well together with uh, the notion of a commodity. The alternative is to regulate them like a security, like a stock. But the problem with that is that cryptos have no cash flows. They don't promise you uh, dividend payments in the future. They just have value intrinsically because you want to use them for something eventually or somebody else will. Um, and then secondly, securities regulation is very onerous. And so if we really do want to regulate these things as securities, we're running the risk of not making uh, possible a lot of projects that are too small right now. Yeah. And, and last, I think last week, Bill Hinman, uh, one of the um, yep. high-ranking officials at the SEC, uh, promised some some level of trans some some written regulation on this, and and I think it it they they are doing this in part because there's a lot of pressure. I mean, you've got a lot of projects uh, in blockchain. You've got a lot of projects uh, that are either staying away from the U.S. altogether, moving out, not even allowing investors to participate. It hurts us financially from both the uh, you know the the business and 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 keeping that business in the U.S. and also hurts our investors of not being able to get involved. So I think they have to create a little bit more uh, information on this and and guidance. I think that's right. Uh, the problem with the U.S. is that it has not only a lot of developers but a lot of potential buyers of cryptos, and that's where the regulators are very uneasy. If you look around the world, the jurisdictions that are most advanced in terms of tolerating this stuff are the places that have a big financial sector, quite a few developers, but where the customer base is small so that regulators feel comfortable giving a relatively uh, open environment because if people go, get burned, it will be mostly people outside of their jurisdiction. So it's places like Singapore, Hong Kong, Switzerland, even London. Uh, in the US, because of the scale of the US, and just the level of interest in cryptos in the US. Um, you, I think the, the challenge for a regulator who is by nature risk averse, because if good innovation doesn't happen, nobody will ever find out. But if some bad innovation ruins people, they, people will definitely find out and they will know who to blame. Right. Uh, so they're very risk averse. I think the regulator looks at that and says, well, given this size of customer base, it's probably not prudent to be open-minded about this stuff. Maybe you but I, I, I like what Hinman yeah. says. Sorry, just to, yeah. to, to comment on yeah. I like what Hinman's saying. I think he I think the SEC is trying to understand this space. I don't think they're coming at it with a big hammer trying to, you know, demolish everything. Um, 
But sometimes when you're the Securities and Exchange Commission, you will look at everything and everything looks like a security. You know, we were talking about earlier about the problems of the world and I was saying that everything to me was economic or almost everything. Right. That's because right. somebody told me, yeah. you're a securities lawyer and yeah. you will, everything will look to you like a security. And I think the, the SEC should have a bit more um, uh, sense of that potential bias. And this one particular commissioner at the SEC, Hester Peirce, who you may have come across, sure. uh, who has given a lot of very positive, very, I think, uh, constructive speeches on this particular subject because she, I think, is very aware of the potential to overregulate early and for uh, regulators to act in the interests of the people who are already established and in their own interests rather than the interests of the public as a whole. And so I think having her there has been really beneficial. One thing that would be useful, I think, for, for people to understand is how the SEC defines a security. So they use something called the Howey test. Can you, you want to talk about what the Howey test is? Sure. So the Howey test is named after a case from the 1940s where um, people leasing a piece of land to grow oranges were brought to court on the grounds that the contract that they'd sold was, quote unquote, a security. Now, it was left to the courts to define what a security was. And that's exactly what the courts did. They Mm -hmm. said that a security met four criteria. It had to be one, an investment of money. Two, in a common enterprise, so something joint, a a business that's involved in some activity, um, with the expectation of profits is the third criterion, and those profits have to come from the efforts of others, right? So you think about those four principles, and you can imagine the typical company fulfills them, right? If you buy a share of a company, you make an investment of money in some sort of enterprise, and whatever profits you get are from the efforts of management, and therefore, your ownership of that is a security. Now, the argument is that cryptocurrencies are a security in some cases. That's what the argument that some people have made. It is an investment of money. Is it in a common enterprise? Well, Bitcoin is a network and it's not owned by anybody. Anybody can join. Anybody can buy Bitcoin. And indeed, you buy on the basis of the going price. It doesn't entitle you to any face value or any payments in the future. Now, there may be an expectation of profits. Some people buy in order to make a buck. That's no, uh, absolutely no question about that. But do those profits come from the efforts of others? Again, hard to say because, sure, there are miners who are involved in fulfilling transactions, but miners are in it for their own gain. Yeah. They're not in it for, for to, uh, they're serving others in the process, which is the virtue of Bitcoin, but they're not doing it for the benefit of others primarily, or being directly compensated by others, they get some fee revenue, but that's most of the revenue they get, right? So it's a weak case. And it sounds to me like it's shoehorning a new technology into a 70-year-old definition that was meant for citrus mm-hmm. groves in Florida yeah. and not for decentralized networks. Well, I think that's right. And the other, the other complex aspect of this, at least the way I try to get my head around this, is that Hinman also... Going back to this SEC official that we, we keep referencing, Bill Hinman, he also said, which I thought was interesting, Ethereum, you know, is, has been ruled not a security. And the reason that the Ethereum is not a security is because it is, quote unquote, sufficiently decentralized. And to me, that still doesn't quite it, it still doesn't quite work. I mean, listen, I, I don't want anyone to consider Ethereum or any other protocol a, a security, but it. 
I don't I don't know if I buy what he's saying. I mean, just because something is sufficiently distributed or what why does that mean? I mean, people certainly buy Ethereum for the uh, for the profits. They certainly maybe there's no effort. Uh maybe there is no centralized business. Is that what he's getting at there? Can you do you have an idea what he's talking about? <laughs> I guess that's the question. I mean, my interpretation of that, it's important to say that Hinman's remarks are non-binding. So sure. he is an SEC, he's an SEC official, a top-ranking SEC official, but it doesn't mean that that's yeah. what the SEC believes. Sure, this sure. was a speech he gave in California in June. I think what he was getting at is that at some point, the notion of a common enterprise disappears. And so there's nobody actually in management. So if you look at some of the more recent crypto offerings, the famous initial coin offerings, ICOs, there you clearly have a group of developers saying, give us money today and we will develop a platform that will yeah. be a decentralized platform and you will get tokens in the future. And some people argue that that contract that these developers are offering is a security. Now, in the case of Ethereum, Ethereum did something like that, but it was back in 2014. And four years later, most Ether is owned by a very decent, by a very sort of dispersed pool of people. And the intellectual leaders of Ethereum, people like Vitaly Buterin, and Joe Lubin, they own a very small share of the whole. So yeah. they don't have much controlling power. And they certainly don't have any more power than any other developer in terms of persuading people or yeah. maybe in persuading people because they're credible figures, but not in terms of adding changes to the network, right? And I think Hinman's argument was, well, you know, decentralization at some point is such that we no longer have a common enterprise. And therefore, the profits that are made cannot be said that are made by some for the benefit of others yeah. in that in that in the way that the Howey test describes. My problem, as you were saying, you know, my problem with sufficiently decentralized is that it's a sort of term that a lawyer loves and an economist hates. <laughs> yeah, right. Because the lawyer, the lawyer can spend a lot of time and earn a lot of money discussing what that means, and the economist cannot put it into an equation. And so, you know, it's the sort of thing where it's very difficult to quantify. And given how many people are worried about the uncertainty about security designations, you can imagine how they would try to game the system. And the SEC being aware of this is never going to give, a, they're not going to say, oh, it has to be 60% decentralized or 67.7% uh, decentralized. Yeah. It's never going to give a number because, he, because they know that people would then game it and everybody would issue tokens up to the point where they were yeah. sufficiently decentralized, yeah. right? We don't want that and I can understand that. But I don't think it's a good measure. It's a good criteria yeah. to, to ascertain this. What I've proposed is that all existing cryptos be designated commodities, as I mentioned. And for ICOs, it depends on the nature of the offering. If, if I'm saying to you, but give me money today and you cannot trade the contract I'm giving you, but I promise you, if I succeed within six months, I'll give you a token. And if I don't succeed, you'll get your money back then maybe that shouldn't be a security. Whereas if I say, but here's a contract, do with it what you will. I promise you this is going to be a unicorn. Um, it's going to give you tokens and so on, but you're exposed. If I lose the money, I lose the money and you know you have no liability or I have no liability. Um, that looks more like a risk-taking venture of the sort that a security is. And so I say, we'll give two tiers and then let people structure their fundraising on the basis of that guidance. And I think that would create a more open environment. Yeah, I think that the real challenge is the, you know, the the things that are already out there. I mean, the interesting thing I find about Himmons' com comment about decentralization is um, when you look at Bitcoin, there, as you know, there's only ever going to be 21 million Bitcoin. And I think, um, 
you know, right now, for example, out of the 17 million or so that have been mined, only 3 million are in circulation uh, or actually trading. Um, everybody right. else is just hodling. So you've got probably, you know, huge amounts of, of Bitcoin in the hands of you. And we know that's the case. So that's an interesting counter argument to, to sure. you know, anyway, that is just a thought. I, I, th I think that's true. But you have to look at the, first of all, are the people who own those Bitcoin, are they creating value for others? Are they mostly miners? Uh, what role are they playing? Right. Or are, are they in it for themselves? Because they're not really managing anything, it doesn't seem to me. Not even the, the Vinkovos brothers who are, or the Vinkovos twins who are right. doing a lot of work Generally, for derivative yeah. products sure. on the basis of cryptos. Uh, I wouldn't say they play a management role in any yeah. of the cryptocurrency networks, right? Um, and then the other thing is, do they have the incentive to do anything wrong with it? Right. If you're a big Bitcoin holder or if you're a big miner, People worry about attacks on the network, right? That people will try to attack the system, get all the Bitcoin, run away, and defraud everyone. Yeah, it's well, very sensitive, and it only works once. So, you know, I see that, and I'm sure the possibility is there, but the incentive isn't. Well, right. I mean, that that's what the probably the the silliest argument that people have. I mean, is that you know, Bitcoin can. That somebody's going to, um, uh, you know, somebody's going to attack the network, but uh, with a fifty-one percent attack. But in reality, if they did that, the network would be worthless, and they would lose all their money, and it would be mutually assured destruction. So, so that's not going to be helpful. But anyway, um, I, I don't want to belabor the point. But what's your what's your thoughts in terms of you know blockchain, how this affects uh, banks and financial services, uh, you know? In the, in the coming years? Because obviously there's some significant um, technological advantages here too. And and particularly if you're looking at smart contracts and things like that, I mean, a lot of the, a lot of that work uh, suddenly becomes uh, almost automated, right? And, and so how does that affect these financial institutions? Well, I, I think a number of things. The first one is that I think blockchain, blockchain technology, at least at the outset, is going to be particularly proactive within firms. I think right now, intra-firm coordination for a lot of these multinationals involves very costly processes in terms of database keeping and record keeping and um, be, being able to make sure that a delivery at one location happened and you can record the revenue at another location. And I think blockchain technology by its nature because it's a ledger that's available to a lot of parties at the same time and it's updated simultaneously and you can decide who has a right to update it and so on. Very well suited for that. And I can see why people like IBM would be very interested in using it. I think those use cases are going to be the first. Um, the bigger promise, as you were suggesting, is in the public, more public networks. And here particularly, I think in terms of the trading of titles to things. So securities markets are going to be, I think, quite... Uh, strongly affected. Right now, securities sure. markets are very very centralized. Um, transactions take some time to clear. It's expensive. The cost of what is called financial intermediation, a lot of which is trading, hasn't really gone down sure. since the 1970s, which is counterintuitive. Uh, so there's a, there's a big cost-saving and time-saving potential in, in the application of blockchain technologies. The key is, though, what sort of system will you use? Because right now we're experimenting a lot in terms of how you can enable that trust within a blockchain network. 
And the way Bitcoin does it is by using a lot of electricity. Now, if you compare it to big payment networks like Visa and MasterCard, Bitcoin turns out not to be very wasteful. You know, it costs just However, um, it's not the most efficient. Right. And so as our experimentation goes, we will probably find out what the scalability of a lot of these solutions is. Right. It doesn't seem to me that, you know, people send it. Right now, intermediation seems to be a dirty word to some people. Intermediaries are bad people. You know, intermediaries are very efficient. Visa is a very efficient intermediary. Right. Um, and I should say, you know, for purpose of fairness, all of its competitors. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, t the large tech firms, um, they've achieved enormous cost savings. You know, you look at Uber, which has sort of re-intermediated transport. I mean, it's, it's, it's for the better. So the notion that we can decentralize everything and go to the extreme seems to me a bit unrealistic because at some point it's just going to become very expensive to do certain transactions. And that, by the way, is what Bitcoin has discovered, which is that if you want to have small payments and a lot of small transactions going through, you have to get them outside the blockchain for a while and then you reintroduce it yeah. again because otherwise it's too costly to put them all through. And that's where the Lightning Network comes right. from and other initiatives like that. I won't delve deeply into that. My point being, though, that we're still evolving both the infrastructure on the public ledger side and also trying to see what the applications are uh, to disintermediate. So, but I think in the exchange of stocks, the exchange of property titles, particularly in countries that have unreliable technologies in other ways, the promise is very great. Absolutely. Well, listen, uh, this has been great talking to you, Diego. Where can uh, listeners li learn more about your work and, and you know, maybe uh, get a chance to kind of get some perspective on your other views? Absolutely. So I'm on Cato.org, which is the website of the Cato Institute where I work. And uh, you'll be able to find my center within Cato, the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives, which covers a lot of the issues that we discussed, you know, from financial technology and cryptocurrency to banking and central banking and a lot of things that probably will be of interest to your listeners. And then uh, more widely, the Cato Institute, if you have any interest in public policy issues, in particularly believe in markets and, and individual freedom, I think we'll offer a lot of resources there. So uh, I encourage your listeners to do that. That's great. Thanks again for being on the show today. Thank you, Buck. It's been a pleasure. I'll be right back. Well, welcome back, everyone. I know some of you are probably getting a little sick of my blockchain talk, but I have to tell you that it's pretty much impossible not to talk about in the context uh, of the future, right? If you're talking about future technology, what is going to look like? You can't really talk about it without mentioning blockchain. And so ultimately, that's why that conversation veered off in that direction again. But for those of you who are interested and want to learn more about blockchain, make sure to check out my podcast, Con uh, Consensus Network, and that you can check out the same way you're checking out Wealth Formula. Uh, you can do it through iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, all the usual places. But it is a podcast that's focused on uh, blockchain and other distributed ledger technologies that really tries to approach it at a level where you don't have to be, you know, totally, you know, you don't have to be a total computer savvy person. I try to simplify the concepts the way I simplified things on this show. But I think you'll enjoy it, especially if you like the interviews we've done with Tika Tawari. It's around that kind of level show. So again, check that out, Consensus Network. Uh, you can also check out our tutorials at consensusnetwork.io. Finally, make sure to go to wealthformula.com. And if you like what I'm doing here, give me a five-star review. 
that, along with just subscribing to the show, uh, will really help because that's basically how iTunes ranks us. We're top, you know, consistently, fairly consistently, a top ten investing podcast, uh, and uh, I'd like to keep it that way because that helps us to continue to attract great guests like Diego and some of the others we've had on the show. That's it for me this week, though. Uh, This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Safeview with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.